0: All right. Well, we've been going through the book of Acts since the beginning of the summer, and we're up to Acts 27. There's 28 chapters in Acts, so we're very much near the end. And um, if you're not familiar with what's been going on in the story, the second half of Acts is really about Paul. And he was a Pharisee, a religious Jew, who was converted miraculously by Jesus and became known as Paul, went around preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ all around the Roman Empire, and there was a lot of opposition against him. Everywhere he went, he faced a lot of opposition, and now he's been arrested, even though he's done nothing wrong, he's been arrested, and he is on his way on a ship in Acts 27 on the way to Rome, to because he has appealed to Caesar, because he knew he would not get a fair trial among the Jews who had arrested him. So he's on his way on a ship with two friends, Luke, who wrote Acts, and Aristarchus, and then a number, about 273 other prisoners and sailors and passengers and soldiers on their way there. And a storm is going to come upon them in Acts 27. And what I want to do is just look at the storm as a metaphor, um, not just the literal storm of what happens, but also what we learn about God when we go through the storms of our life as well. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 27, verses 8 to 44. A lot of Luke's writing when it comes to this, it feels like the original travel blog, where he really kind of gets all the details about what it was like. So we're just going to begin in verse 8 of chapter 27. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives as well. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter and the majority decided that we should sail on, "'hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. "'There was a harbor in Crete "'facing both southwest and northwest. "'When a gentle south wind began to blow, "'they thought they had obtained what they wanted, "'so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. "'Before very long, a wind of hurricane force "'called the Northeaster swept down from the island. "'The ship was caught by the storm "'and could not head into the wind, "'so we gave way to it and were driven along. "'As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kauda, "'we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure.' When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis. they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved." After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen, just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, "...unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved." So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, "...you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. And now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive." Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. And then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach, where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. "'Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea "'and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. "'Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. "'But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. "'The bow stuck fast and would not move, "'and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. "'The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners "'to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. "'But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life "'and kept them from carrying out their plan. "'He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land.' The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts, open our ears. Help us to understand this passage, what it means, what it meant back then in Paul's time, what it means for us today, Lord. Reveal yourself to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul is on this ship with about 273 others, only a couple of our friends. The rest of them are not believers. He's on his way to Rome to undergo this trial that he's about to stand before Caesar for, and this storm comes upon them and causes them to shipwreck. And as we look at this storm more closely, I just want to use it to talk a little bit about where God is in the storms, and where he's in the storms of our life. And so there's Two things in particular I want to say. The first is this. We see, as we look at this passage, we see the sovereignty of God and our responsibility in the storm. If you listen carefully to this passage, there was a peculiar dynamic that happened. It's something I learned as I was listening to a Tim Keller uh, talk on this passage. Listen, first of all, to verses 22 to 25. Paul says this, I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. So you read this passage, and what do you, what do you find from this? That there is a God who has already preordained, it seemed, predetermined that every single person on this ship is going to survive. So Paul, as he hears from this angel, goes to encourage everyone. I know it seems like things are not going well, and there's a potential of loss of life here, but I'm here to encourage you that God has told me that every single person here is going to survive. Again, this is what we might call predestination or predetermination, that God stands outside of time. He knows the end from the beginning, and he has already determined that they're all going to survive this storm. But then five verses later, Paul says this, and it seems to contradict what he just said. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. And then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So there's some sailors who try to escape. Paul tells the centurion to put a stop to it, and he says, unless they stay with the ship, some of these men are going to die. So on the one hand, he's saying, God has told me no one's going to die. You're all going to survive. And on the other hand, he's saying... If these men leave the ship, some of them are going to die. So which is it, Paul? Is it predetermined that they're all going to survive, or do they all have free will and some are going to die if they abandon the ship? The answer is yes. The answer, of course, is it's not either or, it's both and. And I hope you brought some Advil this morning, because even trying to wrap my head around this has caused a little bit of a headache It seems like it's just outside my comprehension here. But if you look at the Christian faith, it does seem like it's full of paradoxes, doesn't it? That God is the triune God and he is at the same time three yet one. That Jesus is fully God and yet at the same time fully man. That somehow God is sovereign over the world. He is the ruler, but somehow also Satan seems to be the prince of this world. That there's these seeming Paradoxes in the scriptures that you can't drop one or the other, or you end up in heresy. You end up on the wrong side of understanding things. You need to hold both intention as true. And here we have another one. Somehow, God is absolutely sovereign over everything. He stands outside of time, He knows the end from the beginning, He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And at the same time, we have complete free will and we are completely responsible for our actions and decisions. Let me give you a couple examples from the Bible. Think of the story of Joseph. Are you Are familiar with the story of Joseph? He was one of 12 sons of Jacob. He was Jacob's favorite son, and his brothers were not happy about that. And so they made a plan to kill Joseph, but then they eventually sold him off into slavery as, instead. And he wound up in service to a man named Potiphar down in Egypt. And Potiphar's wife accused him of sexual assault. And so he wound up being thrown in prison. And then in prison, he winds up being forgotten by uh, the cupbearer when he's brought out of prison. When a cupbearer comes out of prison to Pharaoh. It's right side again. He forgets about uh, Joseph in the prison. And Joseph stays in this prison for so long until finally Pharaoh has a dream and Joseph is the only one who can interpret the dream. And Joseph is raised up to be second in command over all of Egypt. And so when the famine hits and, the, and Joseph's family and all the rest of the people of God come down to Egypt looking for grain, Joseph is able to save his family and the people of God. Because through these circumstances, he's wound up as second in command over all of Egypt. And when the brothers come before him, afraid for their life, that Joseph is going to retaliate against them, Joseph says this in Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. On the one hand, Joseph is where he is because of the evil deeds of his brothers, Potiphar and his wife, the cupbearer. He's there because of what other people have done to them out of their own free will. And yet at the same time, he's saying, I'm here because of God's sovereign plan. It's not one or the other. It's both and. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To put me in a place where I could save the lives of the people of God. The New Testament example, of course, would be Jesus. That Jesus was betrayed by Judas, who out of his own free will chose to betray Jesus. Jesus. And then the Jews, out of their own free will, chose to have him arrested. And the Romans, out of their own free will, nailed him to the cross. But when Peter is standing before the crowd on the day of Pentecost, he says this, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Again, which one is it? Was it God's plan from the very beginning? Or is it because these wicked men handed him over? Peter doesn't say it's one or the other. He says it's both and. Somehow, in a way that's just beyond our comprehension, we have complete and utter free will. We are responsible for our own choices. Judas is responsible for the choice he made to betray Jesus. And yet at the same time, it was all part of God's plan. Anyone getting a headache yet? Charles Spurgeon, who was a 19th century English preacher, he put it this way. He said, in God's word, the car of truth runs on two rails of parallel statements. A great many people want to pull up one of the rails. They will not accept two sets of truth. Predestination and free agency do not agree, so the modern Solomons assert. Who said they do not agree? They do agree as fully as two rails on a tram line. But some narrow spirits must set aside the one or the other. They cannot accept both. This has long been a puzzle on paper, but in practice, it is ease itself. So here, the practical action of the believer, throwing his whole might into his master's service, perfectly well agrees with his falling back upon the working of God and knowing that it is God who works all things for him. David's slaying of the lion and the bear and the Philistine is clear, but God's delivering him out of the jaw of the lion and the paw of the bear and the hand of the Philistine is equally clear. Make it plain to your own self. I believe that when I preach, I ought to prepare and study my sermon as if its success altogether depended upon me, but that when I am thus thoroughly furnished, I have to trust in God as much as I had done nothing at all. The same, your, the same view should be taken of your view and your service for God. Work as if you were to be saved by your works and then trust Christ only, because it is only by him that you are capable of a single good work. Work for God with all your might as if you did it all, but then always remember that it is God who works in you, both to will and to to do according to his good pleasure. How is it that the Philistine be killed? By God, says one. True, but not without David. By David, says another. Yes, but not without God. Put the Lord on the march with David and you put the Philistines into untimely graves. When David moves to fight, God being with him, off comes Goliath's head. Nor champions' heads nor demons' helmets can stand against the man of God. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Or as Paul put it in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You see the parallel statements and rails there? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work for God with all your heart. Why? Because it's God working in you. They've got to go together. Some of you may be familiar with the modern missionary movement in the 18th century. There was such an emphasis on predestination that a lot of overseas mission had essentially stopped. Because the feeling was, well, if God's going to save people, he's going to save people. He doesn't need us. Because God has predetermined who will be saved and who will not. And it was a man named William Carey who argued that God's sovereignty did not take away the need for human responsibility. That just because God was sovereign did not mean we did not need to go fulfill the Great Commission to go into all the earth and make disciples of all nations. And he went off as a missionary to India, restarting the missionary movement. So you've got to have both. You've got to have both. In the storm, Paul realizes that, first of all, God has promised everyone's going to be saved, but that does not mean that they can just dive in and go swimming and do whatever they want. No, they still need to do everything in trusting to God. And you have to do the same in your life. At the same time, keeping in mind that you are utterly responsible for the decisions and choices you make, while also holding on the the other hand that God is sovereign over it all. What happens if you drop one or the other, if you overemphasize one or the other, if you overemphasize the sovereignty of God, predestination, what happens? On the one hand, it can lead to passivity, right? Well, God's going to do what he's going to do, so I don't really need to work or try. God's just going to do whatever he does. I don't need to pray. God will do what he does. I don't... If you overemphasize sovereignty, predestination, you end up passive or you might end up blaming God for everything. You look back and you say, well, it was God. God did it. God caused it to happen. It's God's fault. On the other hand, what happens if you overemphasize human responsibility? It's all up to me. Think about the burden that puts on you. How it leads to such great anxiety and fear. If you think everything depends upon you and your choices and that it, it, you have the Capability of wrecking your life and the life of others if you screw up. As opposed to believing that even though I am responsible, God is sovereign and God is always working things together for good. And I can trust in him that I can't wreck my life. That somehow he can still work through when people do terrible things to me or I do terrible things, that God can still work it together for good. You've got to hold both in tension: That he is ultimately sovereign over everything and you are also responsible for your choices So let me build upon that with the second point of this, which is this. Look at God's purpose, his good purpose in the storm. Because you look at Paul. I mean, he's one of 275, 276 people on this ship. But look how he rises up as a leader because he trusts in God through this. Everyone else seems to be really afraid for their life, and he trusts in God through it all. And he is telling them when to eat. He's telling them when to stay on the boat. He's telling them when to sail and when not to sail. He trusts in God through it all. He knows that God has a good purpose in the storm, that he's sovereign over the storm. And so, again, bringing it to our own lives, where, where is God in the storms? When you go through difficult times in your life, where is God in the midst of the storms? What does he promise? I think we see three main purposes in the storms. The first is this, that God is always working for our good to make us more like Jesus. No matter what we go through, no matter what other people have done to us, Paul himself told us this in Romans 8, 28 to 29. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, there's that word again, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's really important you keep those two verses together because some people just look at eight twenty eight. God always works for good, and then they interpret the good to mean, you know, like, you're going to get that promotion and and you know the, the marriage is going to be saved and the kids are going to be coming to faith and all these things that you think are good. And here he defines good as being conformed to the likeness of his son. That's the ultimate good. That no matter what happens and what you go through, he's always working for your good to conform you to the likeness of his son, to make you into a person of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's working through it all for good. And so... No matter what storm you are going through in your life, you can trust that there is a God who is sovereign over it all, who is working it all together for good. Isaiah 48.10. Isaiah says, See, I have refined you. God prophesies this through Isaiah. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. It's a metaphor that's used a lot in the Bible for this time of, of suffering as a furnace. And you think about what happens in a furnace, how it has the potential to destroy or to refine And if you put gold in the furnace, what happens? It softens it, but it doesn't turn it to ashes. It destroys the impurities. It burns them so they can be skimmed off. It makes it more beautiful, more pure. That is this metaphor that God gives us for what happens when we go through difficult times under his sovereign love. That it feels like we're getting destroyed as we're melting in the fire here. But it's not. He is trying to purify us, make us more like his son Jesus, remove from us those impurities. So the first purpose he has is to make us more like Jesus. The second thing that he does in those storms is to teach us to rely on him. Again, look at how Paul explained it in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, that he will continue to deliver us. And when you go through things like You know, you go through something like cancer. You go through something like mental illness that will not go away. You go through relational difficulties. You go through things and you realize just how out of control so many things are, right? That you're not God. You're not in control of everything. That you need God. You need to rely on him. And Paul says, we went through a situation here that was so bad that we thought we were going to die. But God was in it. He was not absent. And he was teaching us to rely on him, to trust in him, not to rely on ourselves. The storms show us that we need God. He allows us to go through things that show us our need for him. And then the third purpose in the storm. God works for our good to make us more like Jesus. God teaches us to rely on him. And then God allows us to go through things to equip us to minister to others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, Paul said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Sometimes you go through things in your life and you just have no idea what possible good God could bring out of it, why he would allow you to go through it. And yes, part of it is he's trying to make you more like him. He's trying to remove the impurities. He's trying to purify you. He's trying to teach you to rely on him. But often what he's going to end up doing through it is to equip you then to minister to others, right? I mean, those of you who have lost a son or a daughter, as terrible and tragic as that is, somehow God in his goodness also winds up using that to prepare and equip you then to minister to others. Those of you who have gone through relational difficulties or divorce, as much as it was not God's will for that to happen, he is still sovereign over it all and somehow uses that to equip you to minister to others who go through similar experiences. Those of you who deal with mental illness, as hard as it may be, as much as you want, might want him to just get rid of it, somehow in his sovereign goodness, he can still use that to equip you to minister to others. No matter what storm you go through, it's not meaningless. It's not wasted. That God can use all of it to equip you to minister to others. Paul, as he went through so much suffering, finally made it to Rome, where he was able to preach the gospel there, and he was able to write letters from prison that we have in our Bible that bring so much encouragement and hope to those who will go through difficult times. As he shares about things like this, how they feared for their lives, they thought the sentence of death was upon them, but God rescued them, comforted them, and now he can comfort others out of that same suffering. I want to share a passage that I uh, bring out once a year from Charles Spurgeon's book, The Soul Winner, because I love this and how he illustrates this point of how God uses the, the storms we go through to equip us to minister to others. He said, it's a long quote, so follow along. Some years ago, I was the subject of fearful depression of spirit. Certain troublous events had happened to me. I was also unwell, and my heart sank within me. Out of the depths, I was forced to cry unto the Lord. Just before I went away to Mentone for rest, I suffered greatly in body, but far more in soul, for my spirit was overwhelmed. Under this pressure, I preached a sermon from the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I was as much qualified to preach from that text as ever I expect to be. Indeed, I hope that few of my brethren could have entered so deeply into those heartbreaking words. I felt to the full of my measure the horror of a soul forsaken by God. Now, that was not a desirable experience. I tremble at the bare idea of passing again through that eclipse of soul. I pray that I may never suffer in that fashion again, unless the same result should hang upon it. That night after the sermon, there came into the vestry a man who was as nearly insane as he could be to be out of an asylum. His eyes seemed ready to start from his head, and he said that he should utterly have despaired if he had not heard that discourse which had made him feel that there was one man alive who understood his feeling and could describe his experience. I talked with him and I tried to encourage him and I asked him to come again on the Monday night when I should have a little more time to talk with him. I saw the brother again and I told him that I thought he was a hopeful patient and I was glad that the word had been so suited to his case. Apparently he put aside the comfort which I presented for his acceptance and yet I had the consciousness upon me that the precious truth which he had heard was at work upon his mind. And that the storm of his soul would soon subside into a deep calm. Now hear the sequel. Last night of all the times in the year when strange to say I was preaching from the words the Almighty had vexed my soul. After the service in walked the self-same brother who had called on me five years before. This time he looked as different as noonday from midnight or as life from death. I said to him I am glad to see you for I have often thought about you and wondered whether you were brought into perfect peace. I told you that I went to Mentone and my patient also went into the country so that we had not met for five years. To my enquiries, this brother replied, yes, you said I was a hopeful patient and I am sure you'll be glad to know that I have walked in the sunlight from that day till now. Everything has changed and altered within me. Dear friends, as soon as I saw my poor despairing patient the first time, I blessed God that my fearful experience had prepared me to sympathize with him and guide him. But last night, When I saw him perfectly restored, my heart overflowed with gratitude to God for my former sorrowful feelings. I would go into the deeps a hundred times to cheer a downcast spirit. It is good for me to have been afflicted, that I might know how to speak a word in season to one that is weary. Suppose that by some painful operation you could have your right arm made a little longer. I do not suppose you would care to undergo the operation. But if you foresaw that by undergoing the pain you would be enabled to reach and save drowning men, who else would sink before your eyes, I think you would willingly bear the agony and pay a heavy fee to the surgeon to be thus qualified for the rescue of your fellows. Reckon then that to acquire soul-winning power, you will have to go through fire and water, through doubt and despair, through mental torment and soul distress. It will not, of course, be the same with you all, nor perhaps with any two of you, but according to the work allotted you will be your preparation. You must go into the fire if you are to pull others out of it. You will have to dive into the floods if you are to draw others out of the water. You cannot work a fire escape without feeling the scorch of the conflagration, nor man a lifeboat without being covered with the waves. If Joseph is to preserve his brethren alive, he must himself go down into Egypt. If Moses is to lead the people through the wilderness, he must first himself spend 40 years there with the flock. Payson truly said, if anyone asks to be made a successful minister, he knows not what he asks, and if it becomes him to consider whether he can Drink deeply of Christ's bitter cup and be baptized with his baptism. Amen. Whatever storm you are going through or have gone through, it is not meaningless. It is not wasted. I'll get to that in a second. It's not wasted. That God will use whatever you go through to equip you to minister to others. Doesn't mean that he wanted it to be that way, but it's somehow in his sovereignty, he's allowed it and he will use it for his good. There's a scene from Thornton Wilder's play, The Angel That Troubled the Water. Brendan Manning mentioned this in a talk. He said, there's a scene in Thornton Wilder's play, The Angel That Troubled the Water. The scene is a doctor comes to the pool every, every day wanting to be healed of his melancholy. And his gloom and his sadness. Finally, the angel appears. And the doctor, he's a medical doctor. He goes to step into the water. The angel blocks his entrance and says, no, step back. This healing is not for you. The doctor pleads, but I've got to get into the water. I can't live this way. The angel says, no, this moment is not for you. And he says, but how can I live this way? And the angel says to him, doctor, without your wounds, where would your power be? It is your melancholy that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of of men. And women, the very angels themselves <coughs> cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children of this earth as one as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love service, only wounded soldiers can serve. There is a weight that comes from your suffering. There's a substance that comes from what you've been through that you can speak into people's hearts and lives in a way that I can't or others can't who haven't gone through what you have. And so... Again, I'm encouraging this morning as we looked at Paul in the storm. Excuse me. As we look at Paul in the storm. The storm is not for nothing. The storm is not meaningless. That God uses the storms in our lives to refine us and make us more like Jesus. That he uses it to teach us to rely upon him and that he uses it to equip us to minister to others. Can I encourage you, as Paul did, to trust God through the storm? Trust him through the storm. Let's pray. Just take a moment between you and the Lord, and whatever has been brought to your mind as we've talked about storms, whatever it might be, just ask you to just pray to the Lord. Ask him to help you trust him. Lord, we confess that this mystery is just outside of our comprehension, that somehow we are completely responsible for everything that we do, and yet somehow as well you are sovereign over it all. Help us to work fully and and give ourselves fully to the work that you have for us, to live for you with everything that we have, and at the same time, Lord, help us to trust you, that you are always working all things together for good. We pray especially, Lord, that you would help us to see how you might use what we have been through or what we are going through to minister to others, Lord. We trust you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.